Well, I am excited about this series. This series has been doing a work in my own heart. 360 degree giving. How do we become generous givers? Well, I want to tell you about 1996. 1996 is when Denise and I came to Easton, Pennsylvania, came to this church, and I was a youth pastor, and when we came here, the salary that they offered us was not very much at all. In fact, it was very low, and we wondered, how are we going to make it? At that time, we lived in Southside Easton. We, we rented a small house, and things were really getting tight financially, yet we were determined to give faithfully. And I will never forget this. I, I cannot possibly forget this day. I went out to the mailbox. We lived in a rear alley road. We lived off of the rear alley road. The house was on that rear alley, and the Milton Street was about a 50 to 60 foot walkway to get to. And I'm walking up the sidewalk, and I'm thinking, Lord, how are we going to make it? This is really tight financially, yet I know you called us here, and I know you have the cattle on the Thousand Hills. Money's not an option for you. You can provide. I know what Hudson Taylor wrote back to his wife. We've got 25 cents and all the promises of God. So, Lord, how are you going to provide for us? And I opened the mailbox to get the mail, and there in the mailbox, in an envelope postmarked, so it went through the mail system, there was a letter, and I'm walking back to the house because there was no return address. It got my curiosity aroused, and so I opened the envelope on the way back, and inside the envelope were eight $100 bills. Now, who does that? Who sends cash through the mail system? But somebody did. Somebody whom God impressed gave to Denise and I. It was a miracle. I still do not know to this day who gave us that $800. Now listen, and this underscores the sermon, but I will definitely... In heaven, track that person down and thank them and let them know they've got a friend for eternity. Now, I want you to hold on to that phrase, they've got a friend for eternity. And I want you to hold on to that enough that we can get through this sermon because it's going to feature prominently. We've been able to bless others, Denise and I, in the same way. It's so exciting when you can give to people and you don't even take credit for it. They don't even know it's coming from you. It is so exciting. It's so fun. It's so freeing and liberating to be generous with God's money. It's his money, right? It's not our money. It's so wonderful, and it is so free to not stockpile treasures on earth, even though we have done that. But when we learn not to do that, it means that we, when we have more than we can use, you give it away to those who are in need. When you don't stockpile monies on earth and stockpile treasures on earth, yet you give to those who are in need, listen, that's the way Christians ought to live. You send treasures ahead into eternity where nothing can touch it, where moth, rust, and thieves cannot destroy. Well, we ended two weeks ago by seeing that giving to people and giving to God are the only two, by the way, they are the only two indestructible things on this planet. You know that? People and the Word of God. I think I left out the Word of God part there. 
but people and the Word of God, they're, they're the only two things that will not burn up, that will, that will pass beyond the grave. They're both eternal. So when you invest in people and when you invest in the Word of God, then you're laying up treasures in heaven. They're going to make it beyond the grave. They're going to reap for you. And they're going to reap for me a reward in eternity. And we're going to see this again as we look in Luke 16. Now, before we do that, I know that this sounds sort of odd, especially coming from me who preached throughout the whole Jude series against prosperity theology. I still preach against prosperity theology. I don't think that that is biblical. But what I'm preaching in generous giving is not prosperity theology. It is simply the word of God. There is a way, friends, Christian friends, for us to invest in this life by generous giving. There's a way to lay up treasures in heaven that you will enjoy for eternity. And I'm going to outline that for you through a through a sermon that Jesus himself gives. And it begins in Luke chapter 16, but you've got to see the first part. Now look at the very first part of Luke chapter 16. You've got to have your Bibles open. This is how you proof text me. This is how you take notes. I would encourage you to take notes in your Bible. Look at what he says. He also said to the disciples. Now that tells you, student of God's word, that Jesus right now, he's focusing in on his disciples. This is not to the multitude. His main objective, his main audience are the people that are following him. Those who have said, I want to make you my rabbi. I want to follow you. I trust your words. So he's speaking to his disciples. But look at verse 14. It doesn't mean there's not other people there. It doesn't mean there's not other people listening. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says this. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. So he's speaking to his disciples, but he's not in a locked-down classroom. This is open-air teaching. And while he's addressing his disciples, there are other people listening. And there are other people mocking him. They are lovers of money. Their names, they go by a title, the Pharisees. They were the wealthy elite. If you've ever seen that, I, I think, despicably horrendous television show called Preachers of L.A., well, they're kind of like the preachers of L.A. They're all about money. And they don't like what they're hearing. So here we go. I'm going to give you the parable. I'm going to explain it. We're going to walk through it. And then we're going to apply it. So let's walk through this parable that Jesus gives. It's a fantastic story, but i got to give you a little warning. You ready? This is, by most experts' opinions, the most difficult parable in all of Luke to understand. It is puzzling. You'll see why in a moment. Look what he says, verse 1. There was a rich man, he's speaking to his disciples, who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Well, it's kind of similar, by the way, to a lot of businesses today. You got an owner. Jim Finari's owner of his company does this. You got an owner that doesn't really live 
near. You never really see him very often in the business or in the company. He's a distant owner, and this owner, he's got properties, but he's some distance away. So he hires a manager to oversee the company. He hires a manager to oversee his properties. I want you to think kind of like Joseph overseeing Potiphar's house. This is what the manager's doing. But the owner begins receiving reports that his manager was a mismanager. Look what it says, wasting his possessions. So he summons him to his office. Now you got to get this. The owner's a distant owner. He summons his manager. There's a bit of a journey. We don't know how long, but the parable isn't concerned with those details. But he has to go now presenting himself before the owner. And the owner already knows he's wasting his possessions. By the way, that word wasting, and this is what I like to do, I like to underline that word and write into the margin so that you can know it in the future when you come back to this story. It means to separate or scatter to the wind. It's the word that was used when they threshed wheat. They would take a pitchfork into a pile of of pulverized wheat and they would throw it up into the wind and the wind would take the chaff which was the lighter part, the part that's not edible, the refuse part of the grain, and it would throw, blow the chaff away, but the heavier kernel of grain would fall back down. They would do that over and over and over until the chaff was out of the grain, and then, then they could crush it and make it into flour for bread. Well, that's what this word means. He's throwing the owner's monies to the wind, and it's blowing it away. He's wasting his possessions which kind of reminds us of a saying, a fool and his money are soon parted. Well, that fits the manager. That's what he's doing for his owner's properties. Now, this is important. We're not told whether this is happening because he's fraudulent or because he's incompetent. The parable doesn't tell us. It just says he's wasting the owner's possessions. And by the way, notice he doesn't put up a defense. He's fired. He doesn't defend himself. He knows he's been wasting his possessions. And so verse 2, the owner says, turn in the record or the accounts of your management for you can no longer be manager. He's fired. You ever heard those words before? You ever been fired? Even if you know it's coming, It is startling when you hear the actual words, you're fired. I've been fired once in my life. It it happened on a Friday. I was rehired on a Monday at that same job. But it was my fault that I was fired. But I went in and I humbled myself and I apologized and they rehired me. But I could tell you all weekend, it was shocking. I spent the weekend in a daze, even though I understood it and deserved it. Well, the owner fires him, and he gives him one more task to do. Now, that's not normally what happens, but he's given him one more task to do. I want you to go back and get your records and bring them back. Listen, you've been my manager. I don't know what you've been doing. I don't have your books. Go get them and bring them back, and that will be when you turn in your keys. And the manager travels home, and he... He's on the way home, and he's thinking about his future. Verse 3, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. He's a white-collar worker. 
the thought of digging, and by the way, digging was the hardest work that a day laborer could do. It was too much for him. It was abhorrent to him. I can't do that. And sitting at the city gate or the town's well and begging for a handout, it was too shameful for him. It's really interesting, the non-biblical book, now listen carefully, the non-biblical book, which is called Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, says this, it is better to die than to beg. Well, that's the mindset. That's the Hebrew mindset. It's better to die than to become a beggar. So the manager schemes and he says to himself, verse 4, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their homes or into their houses. In other words, I'm going to be kind to them so that they will be kind to me when I am in need. So he calls in the first of his master's debtors and the first one owed his master's, his master, 100 measures of oil. Now, how much is that? A measure of oil was 8.75 gallons in our, in our measurements today. So this is 875 gallons of olive oil. It's worth about 1,000 denarii. Now, we don't really know that, right? Well, one denarii was a day laborer's wage for that day's work. So this is 1,000 days' salary or over 300 years' worth of debt. This is a lot of money. I mean, think of your own loans and think of your own credit cards if you are in debt to a credit card and how many years are your car payments, how many years it's going to take for you to get out of that. Well, this is a three-year debt, so the manager reduced it by half. He says, take your pen out. By the way, they used wax books. And they would take the nub end of the pen, there was a nub end and a sharp end, and they would blot it out, they would smooth it over, and then they would rewrite it with a sharpened part, reduce it now to 50. 50 measures. He took a year and a half off the man's debt just like that. Now, if somebody did that to you, what would you think? One of the best days of your life. The next man he brings in owed his master 100 measures or around 1,000 bushels of wheat. Now, how much is that? Well, it takes about a quarter, uh, an acre and a quarter to yield a bushel of wheat. An acre and a quarter. So we're looking at, for example, the man would have to farm 100 acres for 10 years to pay off that debt. This is a lot of back-breaking work. And the manager reduced it by 20%. So now from 1,000 bushels down to 800 bushels, he knocked two years off the man's debt just like that. Now the inference is, man after man came in, Jesus only gives us two examples in the parable, but the manager could do this. Listen, the manager had the right, he had the ownership right to all of his master's property to run it as he saw fit. And so he takes advantage of it. Now look at verse 8, and you'll understand why this is the most difficult parable in all of Luke to understand. The master commended the dishonest manager. It doesn't even say the master commended the manager. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. How could the owner commend this dishonest manager? He just cost him a lot of money. And how could Jesus even say that? in this parable. 
Well, you've got a lot of ways that people have tried to make sense of this. If your Bible has study notes, you probably are going to read in there that some will try to explain that the manager just simply cuts out his commission. There's no way his commission is that much. Some would say that the owner had exacted an illegal interest because the Deuteronomic law from the Old Testament said you cannot put an interest on a loan of your fellow Hebrew. And so they say he finally, the manager backed it out, but that's not likely the answer either because it was not illegal to do what the owner did. Or that the owner would have enjoyed the sudden influx of cash rather than waiting years as if a little bit less now is better than none ever. So he'll take the cash, at least it's liquid, it's an asset. But listen, the point of the parable isn't the manager's dishonesty, but his shrewdness. This is the whole point of this parable. And the word shrewdness, and you've got to write this down, it means to do something clever that brings about your own advantage. This is the entire epicenter of this parable. This is why Jesus gives this story. He's not endorsing fraud. He's not saying it's okay to cheat people. He's not saying that dishonesty is the best policy. He's simply showing how clever worldly people can be when they act in their own interest. The manager turns a bad situation to his own advantage, and the owner found it commendable. So the parable's over. And Jesus now addresses his disciples, verse 8. Now, I want you to read this. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The sons of this world, friends, are unbelievers, the unsaved. And they are shrewder, they're more shrewd in dealing with each other than Christians, sons of the light. And Jesus is bringing this to his disciples. I mean, look at the unsaved, look at the investment world, look at the, the money management empire, the financial experts, they're mind-boggling, they're good, they can seize the times, they can get ahead, they can use their money to make friends and they can earn favors, they're building it up, they're sending it forward to their retirement. And they're doing it shrewdly to their own advantage, but their advantage, listen, it ends on earth. When they die, their future on this earth is all they have to look forward to. Now you're going to start understanding the purpose of the parable. The sons of light, Christians, you and I, brothers and sisters, we lack that shrewdness. We're not seizing the advantages. We're not sending our treasures beyond death and into eternity. And Jesus is about to make the point that, they're, that they are entering eternity, that a lot of us are entering eternity, even though we're Christians, but we're entering it as redeemed paupers. And to help us understand this, he gives us three applications of this shocking parable. Now listen, before we go into the applications, let me just teach you one thing. Parables have one main point. That's all they've got. This is the, this is the 
This is the use of stories in the time of Jesus. The Jews used parables, but they only were to have one main point. Did it mean that they didn't have other applications? But you've got to find the main point, and we're going to find that main point. Here it is. God's faithful managers will use his money shrewdly and provide themselves true riches in eternity. That's the main point. If you're going to be the sons of light, Jesus is saying, listen, you've got to use the masters, the owner, the Lord of all there is. Use his money shrewdly, turn it to your own advantage, and lay up treasures in heaven. How do you do that? Look at verse 9, he's going to tell us. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Number one, give outward and make friends for eternity. Now listen, this is a bizarre thought. I'm going to gamble on saying this, but I would imagine almost every person in here, including me until two weeks ago, never once contemplated what Jesus is about to teach. Unrighteous wealth, listen, that's not ill-gained money. That's not evil money. Money is amoral. Money is moral neutral. Unrighteous wealth is simply this world's currency. And Jesus tells us to use money shrewdly, for money can make friends for ourselves in eternity. Who are these friends? Well, they're those who owe their salvation and their welfare to your generosity. You send emergency aid to disaster victims. You give to that ministry that brings God's word to the unreached. You support ministries to homosexuals and for ministries that protect the unborn from being killed in the womb or sacrifice financially to care for orphans. Listen, you pay for a wheelchair for a handicapped woman. You buy lunch and eat together with a homeless man. You get and provide medicine for malaria. You open your home to families who lose theirs. You help them get back on their feet. Listen, you're making friends for eternity. There's only two indestructible things on this earth. I'm going to remind you of them again. They are people and they are the word of God. They're the only things that survive death. And Christian, we are making friends when we generously give toward people. Now let me prove this to you because this is a new thought for a lot of us. Look what Luke 12 says. Sell your possessions to give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. How do you get that? Well, he just said it at the beginning of the verse. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. But when you give a feast, Luke 14 says, listen, if you're going to have a party at your house, invite the poor, invite the crippled, the lame, the blind, the people that nobody else wants. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. And look what it says. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's on the other side of the grave. You may not see here on earth, friends, the effectiveness of your generosity. But when you die and you enter glory, here's what's going to happen. The very first person that you're going to meet is Jesus Christ. 
And he's going to bring you through the gates into eternity. And lined on the road are people that you have helped through your generosity even make it to heaven, even make it to salvation, even make it through this life more comfortably. And they are going to be welcoming you into eternity. And there may be a few for some of us. There may be dozens or hundreds or thousands or for the Billy Grahams, millions. But you will be welcomed into eternity by the friends that you have made. And for all of eternity, they're going to be coming up to you and they're going to be saying, you remember when you gave that money to Samaritan's Purse? You know, to buy that, that goat for that family that you never met. Well, I am that family. And I want to tell you thank you. You don't know what you just did. It's going to be for eternity. When we begin seeing money as belonging to the owner and becoming shrewd about it and so that we can get ahead in eternity and enjoy the people that are there because of it. Christian, give outwardly and lay up heavenly treasures and you will have friends for eternity. But he goes on, give faithfully and be entrusted with more. And I want to give you a, an email that I received a while ago i'm just going to quote it i won't tell you who it's from but here's the email i quote fear of giving is huge my biggest fear was not being able to afford life alone but i had determined to tithe no matter what happened since my husband left me my income has increased twenty five thousand dollars then the thought of my son going to college and we having to somehow come up with close to $200,000 has been more than scary. Again, I had the voice within saying to stop tithing, and again, I determined to keep on tithing. A month ago, my sister's estate had finalized, and the one sister handling it sent me a check for $10,000, even though I wasn't in the will. Now that was fun, figuring out how to use it for college and to gift it. When fears come, I have to remind myself how God has supplied so far even more than I could have ever imagined. Amazing God. Look at verse 10. Now, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, if you've not been faithful with this world's money, giving it generously, who's going to entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, it's God's, well then who will give you that which is your own? Did you catch the end of verse 12? Who will give you that which is your own? Watch yourselves, John wrote, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Christian, did you know that you could lose some of your reward? Why would John say that if that's not true? We can lose our reward, but you won't lose your salvation, Christian brother and sister. But our reward through unfaithful stewardship can be lost. 
You know, verse 10 of Luke 16, there's a couple ways to understand this. One of them is this, that the person who is faithful with a little bit that God gives is trustworthy to receive more from him. And by the way, that's a biblical principle. Proverbs 11 shows that one gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. There is a principle of this. And Paul taught it in the church of Corinth. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving in God. Listen, if you take what God gives you and you generously give it, you steward it for his glory, he will give you more so that you will give more. He's looking for the faithful so that he can enrich them because he trusts them. Look at the word entrust. Do you know that God trusts? mind-blowing and if we've not been faithful with a little bit that god gives us then he is certainly telling us it will affect the true riches we have in heaven true riches is the opposite of unrighteous money heaven's currency is different than earth's true riches are what we enjoy in eternity Unrighteous wealth is what we've got available to us here. But there is another way to understand this, and I believe while the first one is true, this is the way that Jesus intended. Making money is a very small or a very little thing in the grand scheme of life. Just a little thing. I mean, money is temporary. It's a thing of this earth, which is less than an eye blink in the scope of eternity do not toil to acquire wealth Proverbs says be discerning enough to desist listen don't play the lottery don't work 80 hours a week trying to make it ahead then don't try another another one of those schemes to get rich be discerning enough to desist the Bible warns us when your eyes light on it, money, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. He's talking about death. So it's necessary to live. It's necessary to provide what we need. But money is only of this world. Its value ends here on earth. It's a very little thing. And regardless of how much money we have on that final day of our lives, money is meaningless why jesus said for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul yet the key to being faithful with money again is found in those two words entrust and give look at them again giving generously begins with a mindset that we are the manager we are the steward we're not the owner we're not the master the silver is mine the gold is mine declares the lord of hosts every cent you have belongs to god and we are to use it in a way to profit god even the ability to make money is given by the lord look what deuteronomy says you shall remember the lord your god for it is he who gives you power to get wealth listen is it easy for you to make money because god's given you the power to do that and the christian who sees every sense as rightfully belonging to god the owner 
and the ability to make money given by him, that person's going to manage it in a way that's going to benefit God and it's going to benefit us. And it produces a life of devotion that Jesus ends his teaching with, one that we saw two weeks ago. Look what it says, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He tells us give with a manager's mindset. That's the third point. That's the third application. Give with a manager's mindset. And as the parable inferred, God's the owner. He has set us up as managers over his estate. And yes, we steward our time, we steward our talents, all on this earth, but we're going to see money and possessions are in the crosshairs of his teaching. How well are we stewarding and managing his money? Will we have open hands rather than closed hands? Deuteronomy speaks of having a closed hand. You know what it means? It means that when you're in your 49th year, and right around the corner is the law of jubilation, which is when you set your slaves free and you forgive debt. All through that 49th year, here's what the temptation was for the Israelites. Somebody comes to you and says, can I borrow 40 bushels of grain? I'll be in your debt, I'll pay it back, and you know you're going to have to set them free just next year. You close your hand and you say, no, I have nothing to give. That's what we do. That's what it means to live with a closed hand, and God says, open your hands rather than keep them closed. Deuteronomy 15 says that if we do not give to a Christian in need, and he cry to the Lord against you, you and you be guilty of sin, he's going to lay charges against you. And God will hear that. Yes, you have to discern. Yes, you have to bring it before the Lord and pray. Lord, are you moving me to give? Does this person, is this person living in a responsible way? There's not one instance ever of Jesus giving to someone who was irresponsible. You'll never find it. You'll never see a beggar who could work but didn't want to work receive anything from Jesus other than a call to change his life because of the power of grace. That's it. But when somebody comes to us and they are in need and you have it, then you give it or there will be a charge against God on your behalf and God will hear. It's a closed-handed way to live. And those charges, look at verse 1. There was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him. That's, a, that's what happens. He's just elaborating on Deuteronomy 15.9. Christian brother and sister. Be shrewd with your money. Use money to your advantage. Christ tells you to. But how do you do it? You use your money. You give to people. You give to the word of God. You give generously with an open hand. And you will make friends who will welcome you into eternity. And for all of eternity, they will coming to you. They will be coming and they will be thanking you. 
Be faithful in the money you have now. You don't need more. If you needed more, God would give it. Be faithful now. Generously give now. You will be enriched in every way so that you can give more and use it to benefit God's redemptive purposes. Bring salvation to the lost. Bring help to the impoverished. Bring justice to the oppressed. Choose carefully what charities you're going to give to. They have redemptive goals in mind. Direct your money toward what will be done in the name of Jesus, or it will end at the grave. And you will enter heaven a poor pauper in comparison to those whose hearts were set free from the God of money to serve Jesus with all that he gave. Let me tell you as I close what changed my life. Jerry Falwell, the chancellor who started Liberty University, was where I went to my undergraduate school, where my wife went. And in 1984, and I went to Liberty University, I was very far from the Lord. I had fallen away from him. My sophomore year, the Lord started to get my attention. And the way he did it was through who became my best friend, Mike Redman. But also through a sermon that Jerry Falwell gave. And in that sermon, Dr. Falwell said this, Do you want to go to heaven? Four. Saved but poor, with nothing to enjoy and to give back to Jesus. I didn't even know enough theology to know what to think about that. All I knew was that the Holy Spirit used that to be a catalyst for me to wake up and realize how selfish a man that I was. It's been a lesson I've been learning even to this day. I want to go to heaven and I want to meet thousands of people that will come to me one day and say, Tim, you may not have had a whole lot of money, but you learned to use it for people and God's word. And I'm here today because of it. And I want to tell you something. want to hear that? You want to meet your friends? It's your generous giving. Open your hands. Don't live for this earth. Eye blink. Live for eternity. Amen.